When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. Bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon star in 99 Homes, a thriller about a single father who is evicted from his home and must go to work for the ruthless businessman who evicted him in the first place. It's now playing on demand. Also playing on demand is Academy Award nominated Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston as a blacklisted screenwriter in 1947 Hollywood who uses his words and his wit to expose the absurdity and injustice of the blacklist system. The latest independent films are ready when you are with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SBU, we consider how, to paraphrase The Princess Bride, there may not be a lot of money in revenge, but at least it looks awfully cool as we discuss Toshia Fujita's Lady Snowblood. And in honor of Lady Snowblood, we were going to do a whole segment on films dealing with Meiji-era Japan and all of its political and cultural realities, with the country opening itself up to the West, mm. all of the implications of that. We were going to cite some academic works. Mm. But, you know, Matt's still adjusting to a newborn baby. He's in that mode. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about some of the week's big new releases and offer some streaming alternatives to the ones that are a little lacking. Mm. And frankly, there may some be a, them, quite a few. Some of them are lacking. <laughs> yes. Um, but first up is opening break, the segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. And Matt, you're up this time. What are your picks? Well, we got a good batch this time. And the first one you've already mentioned right at the top of the show, it's one I'm really looking forward to seeing. I've missed it so far and I'm excited that I finally get to catch up with it. It is 99 Homes, the new film from Ramin Barani. That is available now on demand. The plot description is a thriller about a single father who is evicted from his home and his only chance to win it back is to go to work for the charismatic and ruthless businessman who evicted him in the first place. And I'm guessing that Andrew Garfield plays the single father. He does. And I'm guessing that Michael Shannon plays the charismatic and ruthless businessman. And he does it so well. And I feel like if I had a movie that had a character that was described as a charismatic and ruthless businessman, there's only like four people I would want. And number one on the list would be Michael Shannon. He's delightful in this he movie. He is. I'm, I'm so glad to hear it. I've heard this movie is actually kind of really good and it went a little under the radar. It, it, it's like a, a kind of low-rent, small-scale Wall Street, in a way, for the, mm. the 2008 recession and the housing crisis. 
I don't think it entirely pulls itself together, but it has two good performances and a great Michael Shannon. It's always hard to be the other movie about something when the other movie is getting a lot of attention. In this case, that would be The Big Short, you know, which got a ton of nominations, could maybe win some Oscars. It's about the housing crisis. It's got a bigger name cast with respect to Spider-Man and and Michael Shannon. Like, you know, that had the big names. And the hook of being a comedy and we're going to explain all this, how this was happening. But just reading the description, you go, this would probably be really interesting to watch as a double feature with The Big Short. Well, the whole sequence in The Big Short where they go down to Florida and they kind of look around, that is the entirety of 99 Homes. It is that expanded and it is about those people rather than the finance people who will, in the end, coast easily off (laughs) of making a lot of money off of this Right. They will just leave that place and get on with their lives. Exactly. Good afternoon. Afternoon. I'm uh, Deputy Anderson with the Sheriff's Department, and uh, we're here to serve you with a court-ordered eviction. Okay, well... So, sir, ma'am, and, uh, do you have any weapons on your body or anywhere in the house that we need to know about? No, 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 no. no. Uh, not Mr. Carver? Good morning, sir. Ma'am, my name's Rick Carver. I'm a licensed real estate broker. Mr. Carver. Rick? Hi. And uh, I'm very sorry to tell you that this home has been foreclosed on and officially transferred to the bank. And I'm going to need you to please vacate the premises. No, I, I understand what you're saying, Mr. Carver. And I've, 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 we've been getting our eviction notices. I was in court yesterday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the judge informed me that I got 30 days to yeah. file for an appeal. And that's what I intend to well, do. Well, if you posted bond and you have an emergency stay signed by the judge, you're welcome to... Well, I got a question. You guys didn't get any... Uh, rescheduling of the, what the I've eviction day. What I've received is a court order signed by a judge. It says you are to vacate these premises today. We were scared this of this. home is owned by the bank. Yeah, so this film played at Venice and Toronto. It's uh, from Ramin Barani, a very good director who made Man Pushcart, Chop Shop, Goodbye Solo. Now he's making bigger movies with bigger stars. I did miss his last one at any price. I didn't see it either. That it was, was the one with Dennis Quaid and Zac Efron. It was and not it involved... well-received didn't involve seeds? like seeds or crops so. and yeah. also race car driving. Yes. It sounded like an odd fit. This one sounds a lot more appealing to me. Agreed. This one I'm not going to let slip by for too much longer. So that's 99 Homes. That's available now on VOD. Quickly, two more picks here, both uh, very well-reviewed titles. The first is called Grandma. It's the new film from Paul White's. That is also available now on VOD. The plot description of this one Uh, Ellie and her granddaughter spend an adventurous day trying to score some cash by visiting old friends, ex-lovers, and digging up the past. And this one has a a cast to rival the big short. It's got Lily Tomlin, Julia Garner, Marsha Gay Harden, Judy Greer, Laverne Cox, Nat Wolf, John Cho, and Sam Elliott. And I think some of those performances came up, I believe... On uh, Film Spotting Original Recipes roundup of the end of the year, great performances that they really liked. I, 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 I'm in baby zombie mode. I don't remember what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I don't know where I am right now. But I vaguely remember that uh, the Film Spotting Original Recipe hosts were a fan of this movie. Did you see this one? I did not. It slipped under my radar. And yeah. this was, I think, one of those kind of sleeper indie hits. I, I feel like this movie actually performed pretty well. It was one of those movies that didn't get as talked about critically, but then ended up finding a real audience. I could be wrong again. I I should just assume everything I'm saying is wrong from now on on this podcast. I I don't even know what I'm talking about. I already do. Good, good. Well, then you're going to have a very easy time of this. I think I could be wrong that it it was like the closing night film at Sundance or a festival last year. And usually the closing night films at festivals are bad. 
almost always. This is true. It's like a signal that you don't need to pay attention right. to them because everyone's left. Already. Right. It's usually a movie with a lot of big stars that isn't very good, but it's a way to get some at least a little bit of press attention after, as you said, most people have already left town before the festival is over. However, this was sort of an exception because it actually got good reviews and it's supposed to be really great. It also has made almost $7 million at wow. the box office, which for a small for indie a tiny film about Indies. an older main character is actually it's very a really, it's, it's a sleeper hit. Yep. All right. So that's Grandma. That is also available now on VOD. And finally, also available now on VOD, and uh, for now for something completely different, is Southbound. This is an anthology horror film following five interlocking tales of terror about the fates of a group of weary travelers who confront their worst nightmares and darkest secrets on a desolate stretch of desert highway. So sort of in the vein of a VHS or um, something like that, this is all horror movies that are centered around the open road, traveling, and uh, it's got some good filmmakers involved. In fact, actually, a couple of the filmmakers had shorts in the original and best VHS, uh, Radio Silence, which is the name of a group of guys who direct together. They were the ones, I think that was maybe my first, my favorite in the first VHS was theirs. The one that was set at the Halloween party. They were. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a good one. And then David Bruckner has a short in this as well. And he did the one in the first VHS that was about like the demon woman. They like the guys on a date and they, they pick up a lady who's, I don't remember Some if she's kind like of succubus vampire succubus yeah. demon creature. Yep. Yeah. So um, so they both have shorts. Uh, Roxanne Benjamin has a short. Patrick Horvath has a short. So this is one, I, again, another one that I've missed, but I also heard strong things about. I've heard that, you know, some of the shorts are better than others, but that's the way anthology horror films go. And uh, there's some good talent there. So that's another one I'm looking forward to checking out. So that is Southbound, also available now on VOD. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we give you the chance to pick our main review by voting on one of three options. And this time around, we gave you some varied choices. The 80s throwback apocalypse action movie Turbo Kid, which is on Netflix. The 1973 Japanese revenge drama Lady Snowblood, which is on Hulu. And Louis C.K.'s original online series Horace and Pete, which is on his website. And this is not a race in which I felt like I could have easily picked the likely winner. Mm. But that winner turned out to be Lady Snowblood, which pulled ahead after a close race and was in the lead when we called it on Monday. Lady Snowblood is the story of Yuki, who was born father unknown in prison in the late 1800s in Japan to Sayo, a woman who dies shortly after birthing her and who conceived a child strictly to avenge her, her late husband and her son, uh, both of whom were murdered by a gang of criminals. Played by Meiko Kaji as an adult, Yuki has all the formidable sword fighting skills you might expect of a young woman who has been trained by a strict priest from birth for the purposes of revenge, as well as all the emotional tragedy. Over the course of the film, she tracks down the remaining three gang members with some help from a network of street people and a local reporter. Lady Snowblood was a low-budget production based on a manga and was directed by Toshia Fujita, a director who's better known in Japan for his films about the younger generation in the 70s and its experiences pushing against societal expectations. 
But Abroad, Lady Snowblood, and its sequel, Love Song of Vengeance, such a good title, mm. are, uh, are what he's best known for, thanks to one Quentin Tarantino, who is a great lover of slash borrower f- from Fujita's first film, uh, mostly in Kill Bill, which was heavily inspired by this movie. So Matt, uh, Tarantino has never been shy about the extent to which he steals from movies he loves. Uh, we even talked on episode 95 about Mandingo, which he pulled from quite a bit in making Django Unchained. That's right. And we're both very fond of Kill Bill. Uh, still, did you have some of that shock of recognition I did when watching this? That feeling that were he to have done this to a better known film that people would have maybe given him a harder time? <laughs> <laughs> they might have, yes. There are certainly some moments that uh, that feel very, very strikingly similar. And I have to say... Not just Kill Bill. Like, certainly that's the one that plot-wise and visual-wise feels the most like it. But the mood of this movie and the style of this movie and the emotions that this movie stirs up, I feel like he's making this movie over and over again. I can see that. I kind of felt like this was The Hateful Eight. I felt like this was Django. Like, a lot of what he's trying to do um, in movie after movie is what this movie is doing. It's like recapture... The feelings that this movie stirs up about revenge and grief and all of that stuff. And I think that this movie, frankly, does it better than he does in a lot of those movies. I mean, I've enjoyed a bunch of those movies. I thought The Hateful Eight was great. But I I do think that um, there is a reason to steal from this movie because it is it's really great. And it has a lot of stuff in it that's very striking and original and unique. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do think I, I agree with your premise. I think if this was the equivalent of a, let's say a Rashomon, like a super famous, you know, iconic movie of Japanese cinema that almost anyone would know, I think he might've gotten some flack. Yes, I do. Yeah. I love this movie as well. It is, it has this lushness to it. This it's kind gorgeous. of, it's, it's, it really, I, I can see why someone would fixate on it because it also, it finds this real, tragedy in this character who's this pulpy character this this girl born in prison raised you know from birth for this one purpose has like no like life of her own essentially not only is she raised from birth she is she is conceived by her mother explicitly for the purposes of of carrying out this revenge that she knows she will never make like she has only one purpose it's not just that she's like an orphan who's found by someone no her mother goes out of her way to have a child so the child can get the revenge that she won't get. Right. And she is visiting this revenge on people on behalf of the mother who died immediately after giving birth yes. to her. And on behalf of two people who died before she was ever born, you know, she keeps being described as this kind of vengeance spirit, essentially. Like she's not even a person. She's a demon. Yeah. She's this, this kind of force of karma coming around to collect. Mm. And, I, you know, that's the kind of concept that should be a little silly and yet feels very resonant in this, in this character who is like, you know, very beautiful and sad. And I think throughout, I don't want to spoil the ending of this, but I, I think that like the kind of, there's a final sequence in which like her emotions show through in this most complicated way of like almost relief and sadness and pity and I think that uh, the complexity of that, of those kind of like grand emotions in a story like this is really impressive. Yeah. And the, the, the way you describe her as, a, you know, almost like this spirit. I mean, she has this incredible look. That's the, that's the other thing is like she, you know, it's based on a, a manga, the, the story. 
it, I, I would say in some ways, obviously it doesn't feel like an American comic book movie, but there is a, a certain graphicness of it. I can see that too, in, yeah. the, in the framings, in the shots. In and in the way it, the, the time kind of slips back and forth yes. in it. You know, uh, it, it's non-linear. I mean, there is like a linear story, but it also, the flashbacks kind of slip in in ways that do feel reminiscent of a graphic novel. Yes. And I think also reminiscent of a graphic novel is the way that this character is designed and presented on screen. She has this very pale skin and these very bright outfits where she's always in some sort of very like a splash of color against a very muted background so that she always stands out. And she does seem kind of like this supernatural spirit of vengeance you know like like ghost rider like is the spirit of vengeance like she's like uh ghost rider's uh forebearer or something or maybe that uh, crazy uh, demon was inside her before it was in uh, Nicolas cage i'd like to see that team up movie actually lady <laughs> snowbelt and ghost ghost rider as i'm describing it I'm, I'm thinking that would be pretty great but just like the that i don't know there there are the she is so striking the actress mako kaji is is beautiful and she has these eyes right. these piercing eyes and they're these close-ups that really look like comic book frames where it's like just from her eyebrows to just beneath her eyes and she is she you know she looks like she is like shooting laser beams through people or through the camera and that thereby like through us like she has this piercing gaze that it just it just cuts you down and uh yeah she is such an incredibly like gorgeous alluring but also intimidating terrifying figure yeah and that there's a shot of her mother uh of her mother kind of at this moment in which she basically like decides that everything is going to be about revenge right that and it, it like the movie links her visually to that uh it you know directly just to be as if she were not a person herself or had kind of surrendered her personhood to yeah. this moment in her mother's life. And this mother, she doesn't even really know. Right. Yeah. And I, I think the ways in which that's transmitted visually are, are very memorable. The other thing that I think is very memorable visually that I clearly Tarantino just took, you know what I'm going to say here? I have a guess, but go ahead. The blood. Yes. The way that blood is shot and used as a almost as paint like like to paint it's bright bright red. bright bright red and there's so much of it and when people get you know stabbed or slashed they erupt in these geysers of blood and the i mean i'm sure someone can write in and tell us well actually someone else did this first but the only thing that the only movies that i've seen that really look exactly like the way blood is presented here are Quentin Tarantino's movies, right down to The Hateful Eight, when characters, and I won't spoil it, but there are eruptions of blood in that movie that look exactly the way they do in this. That They are completely absurd, and but they're not comical. They're not funny. They're like something sort of like terrifying and beautiful about them because they're almost like, they're like, again, supernatural. Like they, they're, they're beyond logic. It doesn't matter that they're not realistic, that they're like these... You know, like a painter's like flourish on a canvas. It's like a, it's just like painting with blood. Well, I, particularly in the scene in which this kind of like primal scene in which Sayo's husband gets killed and he's wearing white, which is like yes. the reason, the excuse they use for kind of complicated reasons for attacking him. But it's this almost like this scene of almost like decadent kind of like splashes of red, you know, where he gets stabbed and his like his white suit becomes like soaked in red and his blood like 
comes out onto the ground where there are like flowers blooming. Yes. Like it juxtaposes this like this kind of outlandish violence with beauty constantly. Yes. You know, in this very idea of like who her name, Yuki, which means snow and the snow, like when she's born, like turning red mm-hmm. and then going into the opening credits. Yeah. You know, Amazing. that the, like the white and the red uh, is this motif throughout the movie that it sticks to very well. Yes. And there's, there's another shot of um, one of her victims. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say she kills most of these guys. She's looking for guys. It's a revenge movie. It's a revenge movie. But one of them like winds up in the ocean and I don't even know how they could have done it because it seems like the entire ocean suddenly is bright red. Like, do you know how difficult it must be to get that shot because of how just the sheer volume of water and like food coloring or dye, whatever they're using to make all of the water around this guy suddenly turn bright red? Like, and but it, it just it's such an impactful shot because you really haven't seen stuff like that. And I was thinking, you know, thinking of like the movies of. You know, the early 1970s, this is 1973, American movies of this time, which are the new Hollywood films. These are, like, considered very mature films and really cutting edge. I'm just thinking about, like, how silly and goofy blood looks in a lot of these movies where it looks like literally someone has, like, put, like, red paint on their lips or something. And sometimes it's not even, like, red. It's, like, dark purple. Like, it, it, it's it, – it, this is just on a whole other level of artistry and effectiveness and and abstraction even that is just like it's kind of mind-boggling frankly yeah i i was also just so impressed by the ways in which this allowed this this kind of this fairly straightforward story of revenge to have these moments of random beauty mm-hmm. like there's a scene that stood out to me in which this side character has been making baskets these kind of fishing baskets yes and uh she's been lying to her father about that she sells them everyone wants to buy them that's how she's supporting the family and then she walks to the this cliff and throws them off the ocean and it stays on her as she does this and it kind of there's a lushness to this scene and it shows these baskets like bobbing in the ocean below and there was no reason to stay on it for the whole time except this appreciation for the kind of beauty of this gesture and yes. also just the secret that she's keeping, right, which, which is, is hiding she, this terrible secret, Yeah, hiding this terrible secret. Uh, you know, I, I, the ways in which the movie finds time for that uh, are, I, I mean, really what make it so memorable Yeah, that it, it is a movie that is never ignorant of the beauty that it is creating, you know, that it appreciates that as much as it does the violence. And that character ties in so perfectly with Lady Snowblood herself and that character. And and just this idea of, you know, there's so many movies, revenge movies, about, you know, the, the cyclical nature of violence. But I think that this movie does a, a very interesting way of approaching it in that there are so many characters who are the children of this first generation. You know, it's not just one character who's out for revenge or that there's one character whose life has been destroyed by this. And it's something that Tarantino uses in Kill Bill 2, you know, as well. I was going to say Kill Bill 2, but it's in Kill Bill 1. But, you know, with that character who witnesses this horrible act and she's, you know, and they have this moment where the bride basically says, hey, if you got to someday take care of this, this is, you know, we'll we'll talk about that, basically. Yeah, but that's like, it's, that moment is like I think in comparison to this, it just looks so much more clumsy. I agree. You know? But that I think he's absolutely he's, going going for right. what this movie does so well, which absolutely. is that it, it shows you how the, the like basically this one event just has these ripples of of repercussions throughout generations, and that it's not just 
this one woman who I again I was just fascinated by this character who is getting revenge for something that she didn't, doesn't know about doesn't know about didn't yes, witness she didn't personally know. right yeah. exactly and that she's sort of like marked by it I thought was already fascinating but then when you add in the fact that that woman with the baskets and where her story goes and then the reporter character that um, Lady Snowblood meets that that again becomes uh, I don't want to spoil it but he has a connection as well and just the way that all of these lives have been sort of irreparably damaged by it and that you see that for again for like all that beauty that we sometimes get in these sequences you really do feel the consequences and i think that's something that maybe tarantino strives for at times but doesn't always achieve trying to like capture both sides of it that sort of like the release of the violence but also the like sort of the weight of it too i don't know that he always gets there i agree i think that also you know this movie is set at its time period for a reason it was like japan was opening up there's this whole masquerade ball at the end that is filled with westerners right and yeah. it's the scene of decadence mm-hmm. and it's and there is a character who is basically like i'm in like this you know new japan like i've got a place for myself and i think there's this real like like this character is a figure from the past, right? Lady Snowblood is, she is doing something. She is basically like, there is something ritualistic about the way she has devoted her life. There's something kind of old fashioned about the way she has Mm -hmm. devoted her life to, to these people she has never met. Yeah. And I think that adds to the weight of sadness in her story that she is kind of enacting, I don't know, this duty that maybe in a generation or two, people won't feel the same you know, mm. hold, they won't feel that same hold. It probably enhances also the spirit that she is this kind of ghost or something, that she comes from out of the past, that she is uh, some sort of lingering spirit of something that's maybe either gone already or is vanishing around around these people. Um, I guess the second movie, which I haven't seen, is more political and gets into a little bit more of that sort of political situation that you're talking about based on what I read. I would definitely want to watch it. I, from what, what I read, it sounds like it's not quite as, you know, like magnificent as this movie, but, um, you know, same director, same star. So you certainly will get, um, you'll get some of what you liked about this one. And it's something that I really want to watch now. I don't know when I'll have time, but I'm really, maybe we'll have to make the second one a listener's choice option at some point. Cause I really want to see the next one. I was really totally blown away by this movie. Yeah, I was too. I, you know, I didn't know what to expect because it has, well, I think, especially when you have a movie that has been made famous by Quentin Tarantino, right. it, does it, it can mean a lot of things. Absolutely. It can mean something that is this underappreciated gem, or it could mean something that is this weird piece of pop cultural ephemera that he has fixated on. Right. And I think in this case, this is a real underappreciated gem. Yes. Like, this movie is not an exploitation movie that he has, you know, decided to kind of, like, elevate in some way. This movie... No, is, this movie deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. It deserves to be, you know, more widely seen. And uh, you can watch it right now. It's available right now on uh, Hulu. So if you want someone to blame for why we haven't done cue shots for the last couple of episodes, blame me. No, better yet, blame my daughter. 
write letters. That monster. Riley. Her name is Riley. I want you to, I'm going to read them to her too. So write them in <laughs> and I'm going to sit her on my knee and I'm going to be like, Riley, look, look at this. Look at, who, look at who you're upsetting by keeping me from watching more movies than I already watch. She needs to learn, Allison. But yeah, it's just, it's been very difficult to, uh, it's hard enough to find time to watch one Lady Snowblood, much less like five revenge movies. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Matt right now. He is not in good shape. No, I'm not. And I wasn't in good shape to begin with. So it is, <laughs> d- things are deteriorating rapidly. But the, but the other thing is like this week in particular, I, I know I had seen a, I had seen like all the new releases. Like that was the other issue was the last week or two. I've had a bunch of screenings, so we thought we will usually, you know, devote a few minutes to talk about the new movies. This time, we have seen all three new releases. Allison has also seen uh, one of the limited releases that she, as she put it off air a minute ago, she loves. I do. So we want to make sure we mention that as well, and we thought what we could do is we'll do our, like, a little bit longer versions of the reviews we normally do, and we'll also suggest some alternatives that you can watch at home, because we don't really like most of these movies, and even in the case of a movie that we do like, like, hey, maybe you're not going to get to the theater, and here's something that you can watch if you're in the mood for something like that. That's what we're here for anyway. So that's what we're going to do. Let's start with the movie that, as we're recording this on Sunday morning, I'm looking and people are tweeting about how this movie has is like the biggest R-rated movie of all time. It made $600 trillion last weekend. Oh, no, I misread that. $135 million. But still, that's that's quite a bit. That is Deadpool. Deadpool, now one of the biggest R-rated hits of all time, Allison. So are you prepared for decades of movies where obnoxious characters make jokes about their genitals and people call it brilliant deconstructions of uh, Hollywood formula? I'm really not. I know we are simpatico on this movie, which is we are in the minority uh, opinion that it is not successful. Um, I've already gotten some really pleasant emails about writing one of the negative reviews. On what's, what's, let's see, if, let's see who, who who wins this battle. Oh, what's the worst thing you've gotten so well, far? Well, I feel like I've gotten one or two that were just like, "Oh, you're pretentious and horrible." Mm, that's pretty bad. But the they one, might have a point, though. Mm, that's fair. Okay. I mean, like even my friends say that to me. <laughs> but the I, I really appreciated the one that was like a long treatise on how to write movie reviews Ooh. in which can you forward that to me i could use that mm, and in which uh this young man expounded on <laughs> how do you know it was a guy because his name is on this email oh. um that uh on on kind of there's a place for intellectualism in his words but this, not deadpool but not I think maybe not in movie reviews in general. Oh, I see. He said that I'm not sure what I couldn't really get to like what his idea of a perfect review should be. I think maybe just like number ratings on like plot acting cast and no writing at all. I see. But there is a scientific formula to movie reviews. But it was like a a kind of deeply, very polite and deeply condescending email about about his ideas of what movie reviewing should entail. That, that was, sounds pretty bad. Yeah. How about you? I, I like... got someone who just sent me a picture of a turd in a toilet bowl. Nice. Do you think it was one of his turds that he took? That's or... a good question. If it was, this person needs to go to a doctor because their <laughs> digestive system is not functioning properly. No. But uh, yeah, that was what I received as a uh, as, in response to my what I thought was fairly measured uh, criticism. I thought so too. I feel like there were a lot of ways in which people could have like laid into this movie more. 
I'm sure there are people who have. Uh, a few people. I mean, the the reviews of this movie are largely positive. The, very positive. Yeah. I was sort of surprised. I was surprised I, you know, because too. it's. I'm looking now. It's 84 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, if you had asked me as we were walking out of the theater, what is the percentage going to be? I would have guessed like positive, but like low to mid 60s. I would have thought. Yeah, uh, yeah I would have said because the same there thing. are things to like about it. It's it's not like. I don't know, offensively bad. It's not horrible. I just didn't find it very funny or interesting. And I didn't, I really didn't think it was as clever as it thought it was. I think that is my main complaint, which is that for me, the most clever joke it made was the one in the opening credits mm-hmm. in which it reduced, instead of listing the actors and the director, it says it stars God's perfect idiot, a hot chick and a British villain and right. a CGI character. And it's directed by an overpaid tool. Right funny and cute it's like the most daring thing it does really because after that all of its jokes are basically just pointing out the kind of machinations of of big expensive studio superhero movies without while doing the same things right that yeah that was that was my big beef too is that it just you know i didn't think that uh, uh, you know enough of the jokes really landed I thought that, you know, some of it, there was some, I laughed a couple of times. It's not the worst, you know, like the worst comedy I've seen. It just, it was a lot more impressed with itself than I was impressed by it. You know, that it just, it just has this sort of smug attitude about itself. Like, just because, you know, Green Lantern and X-Men Origins Wolverine were so crappy, that by, by pointing out that those movies were crappy, that like somehow it's automatically better. And I don't know that that's the case, especially when, as you point out, like there's a lot of this movie that is just like X-Men Origins Wolverine. It's just with a less sort of turgid script and more jokes about how crummy it is at times. Right. And uh, you know, this is also a movie that kind of takes a lot of pride in being like I'm no superhero, but it is like a totally. very formula superhero movie. Absolutely. An origin story about someone who It is beat for beat. It is X-Men Origins Wolverine. He just doesn't fight Leo Shriver with ridiculous claws. And, you know, like, this Deadpool actually looks like the character and, 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 talks. and talks and has some funny moments. Like, that's the big difference is that, like, X-Men Origins Wolverine is so incredibly sincere and, like, rawr and really macho. And this movie is sort of deflating that. Like, that's the one thing it does. Yeah. So I just I feel like we're at an interesting point with superhero movies where everyone is aware of the fact that there are only that, that people are, are you, you're telling the same story over and over again. Like, right. all origin stories are, like fairly similar Mm -hmm. and that i don't know a movie like guardians of the galaxy successfully and ant-man less successfully kind of are both like kind of jostling up against you know the sides of that story and this movie instead of jostling up against the sides of it just basically acknowledges everything while doing it i think the difference for me is when you say guardians of the galaxy which was a movie i really enjoyed me too and i've watched a bunch of times now is that that movie seems like it's like it's having fun and happy to be in this universe of fun comic book adventures whereas deadpool is like no i'm kind of better than these things even though the emails we've been getting suggest that clearly, uh, you know, other comic book fans, and by the way, I've been reading comic books since I was 13 years old, uh, they don't feel that way. But it just, I don't know, it just has this smug attitude like, oh, we're way better than those crappy movies. Whereas Guardians was just like, man, making a comic book movie is fun. Right. Well, I think, you know, Guardians is a movie in which its main character was a fan of space operas. Right. And then delighted to find himself in a space opera. Right. Whereas, Whereas Deadpool is like, superhero movies are stupid basically and superheroes are stupid and i am not a superhero don't call me one right i'm just going to do superhero things anyway i so what 
what is our alternative to Deadpool then well, for people who either saw the movie, enjoyed it, and looking for more, or are just not going to go see it? Well, I wanted one of the things about Deadpool that I think after it, aside from all of our complaints and all of is that its basic story is is pretty weak. If you once you take away all the timeline kind of like juggling and like strip out all of the meta jokes, it is a story about someone who gets these powers. Uh, that save his life, but also make him ugly. And then who spends the whole movie trying to get unugly. Yes. Not trusting that the girlfriend he loves and has proposed to right. will, will accept, accept him, him being ugly. Yes. Did you like the fact, and I, uh, please don't write in and tell me, well, this is from the comic. I've read a lot of Deadpool comics. I uh, Did you like, though, where he's like, they torture him and it turns, it makes him all burny. They turn, turns his skin burned. And then he's caught in a giant fire. Like he gets burned, but then is burned. Right. I yeah. They really could have just left it just, like that. Anyway. So anyway. I figured I would point out that a movie that has a similar Please. getting burned, getting oh, superpowers. Look at uh, this. And also, like, what do I do with my girlfriend who I miss terribly? You're, you're hitting on all these yeah. excellent points. It, I didn't but, even think but of. But it is not. Uh, it is not a self mocking movie. It is no. Dark Man. Yes. Uh, which is streaming on Netflix right now. The 1990 movie. 1990 superhero movie uh directed and written by sam raimi uh starring liam neeson as Pe- peyton westlake who is a scientist who's working on this like skin like basically this uh, synthetic skin yeah. that um basically when... like mission impossible masks exactly and they can only last for a certain amount of time 99 in the minutes i believe yes in the light and uh then there's like this corrupt developer and basically he gets caught in this explosion he gets horribly burnt uh, the, in the hospital. They were, driven like, kind of crazy. He really is like is. Deadpool, as you're He's describing it. Crazy. Uh, and then in the hospital, they basically like remove his ability to feel pain, right. like another Deadpool character. That's um, true. In the order, bad guy, because wow. the pain is like so constant that it is like going to drive him like even more, insane. even more crazy. And then he becomes this character who like is not sure if he wa- he like wants to figure out a way to tell his girlfriend who's played by Frances McDormand that he's alive but then isn't sure cuz he's now all hideous. Right. Uh, Who and- could love him? Exactly. And it is uh you know it's a uh, it's an invention this character was an invention of Raimi's. He couldn't get the rights to a bigger superhero so he invented this character and I think like really did something's very well in terms of like actually running with psychological damage and the price you pay for these powers and how you might get changed. And I think in the ways in which Deadpool is very glib about this, like basically its whole storyline could have been resolved by just like a conversation. Right. (laughs) Um, It's very glib about that. Like Darkman really like runs with psychological damage and with the idea that someone who had gone through these experiences wouldn't just be scarred on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Liam Neeson as a superhero. Like, like, you know, long and before. And he seems really crazy. Like the whole, like Deadpool, they make, they, there's a lot of lip service about him being nuts, but really he just makes jokes. He just makes jokes and he kills bad guys. Right. And I, I realized that this is like a comic book rule sometimes of like who kills people and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. I, that seems like such a kind of minor weird rule to me that like, this is significant. I dark man seems legitimately unhinged, unhinged, right? Like he has been damaged in a way that he may never recover from. And you know, Liam Neeson has like gone on to have this more recent career as an action hero, but this is in 1990 and he proves himself to be a pretty good action hero. 
I, I know what you're saying here. It's time for, well, they made two Darkman sequels direct to video without him. But you're right. It is time for old Darkman. <laughs> Liam Neeson comes back. Darkman returns. I have a very specific set of skills. Yes. Well, uh, that it is a movie that I think uh, manages to fulfill all of these things that you might want in a superhero movie without having to point out its own weaknesses. So that is Darkman. It is available on Netflix. Whether you like Deadpool or not, I would suggest you check I, it out. I second that. That's a great pick. And I didn't even realize the full extent to which it is kind of uh, lifting, homaging Darkman. And uh, I think you've pointed them out quite well. All right, let's move on to the next new release. And we'll talk about that. And then we'll get to an uh, alternative in a minute. That movie is Zoolander 2. Zoolander number two, Two-Lander. There's been a few different alternate titles here. Allison, before we discuss this movie very briefly, are you a fan of Zoolander? Were you looking forward to a sequel? I like Zoolander. I had not, like, my life would have been fine if there had never been a sequel. Mm -hmm. I feel like doing the sequel 15 years later, while we live in an age of sequels now and yeah. franchises and reboots, yes, this was not that was not a movie that felt like it was screaming out for a sequel to me. No, probably not. I'm a big I, I am a big fan of the first movie. I will say I rewatched it recently, late at night, one night with the you know my daughter sleeping on my lap, and I thought it it holds up pretty well. It's funny. It's a funny movie. So while I agree, I wasn't dying to see a sequel. I don't think there was a reason for a sequel. When you say, well, it's Ben Stiller back for the sequel and Owen Wilson and Will Ferrell, they got everybody back and they go, okay, I'm, I'm curious. I thought the trailers were pretty good. They made it look pretty funny. There were some funny jokes in there and I was, I was excited about this movie. And for the first five minutes, 10 minutes, I was like, okay, there's some funny jokes in here. I'm chuckling. And then, oh, Allison. And then, and then I don't think I laughed again for like the last like 70 minutes of this movie. And it was, it was bad. I mean, made Deadpool look like, uh, I don't know, Make his Deadpool girl Friday like, or yeah. something, you yeah. know, a, a masterpiece of comedy. I would agree. I think mostly because when you watch it, you realize that, like, they didn't understand how to make a sequel no, to Zoolander. they didn't like, they have really any idea. they didn't have any sense of... I mean, like, the first movie is, I think, both a very funny kind of, like, broad satire of the fashion industry, but it's also a movie about like how these guys find the idea of male models funny, you know, like in this world of, um, that is like dominated by women and gay men that you have like these, this group of straight guys who are just kind of like coasting by on, you know, ob obliviously on their beauty and leaving right. these like charmed lives. And, uh, and I think that the, that was by making them the main target, that was their way of being able to take on this industry in the sequel. It's very clear that they don't understand the fashion industry anymore. And they mostly avoid it, except yeah. for some poorly chosen jokes with, like, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, yeah. You know, but they don't understand how. Like, I mean, the whole joke of the movie is they're out of the loop, but also... That's actually true. They, they are they out of the loop. They seem genuinely out of the loop. Right. Right. And in a way, I mean, that first movie feels sharper. You know, last year... Oh, so much sharper. When, last year, when Kanye West released Yeezy Season 1, his, like, first fashion collection, everyone was making jokes about how it was basically the derelict <laughs> collection. Right. And you're like... That movie is 15 years old and is yeah. more on point than anything that happens in Zoolander 2. Yeah, I think you – I we, we completely agree. That first movie, you know, it's not genius, but it had a point of view. It had some funny material. It had an idea in its head, even though the character has no ideas in his head, and that was sort of the point. And, yeah, that derelict fashion line was 
just so witheringly on point that it remains on point all these years later. And there is not a single joke in the new movie that even comes close to being as interesting, funny. And yeah, they have, they just have no idea what to do with these characters at all. And what they found uh, to replace sort of like the general, like kind of the more satirical elements of it is just basically is just wacky clothes, like, make people dress funny because it's the fashion world. So people dress, you know, outlandishly and that's always funny. And then celebrity cameos. I don't think I've ever seen a movie with more celebrity cameos. Just every scene, there's a new famous person to show up and just have them have Ben Stiller be like, hi, you know, insert name of famous person here. Stop doing that. And, and that's just, it's just so desperate. Yeah. Uh, did you have a favorite celebrity cameo? I mean, I thought the opening with Justin Bieber was kind of cute. Like, I thought that was fine. I had no problem with that. And, like, watching, and I don't think this is a spoiler. It's the very beginning of the movie. It's in the trailer. But, like, watching Justin Bieber get, like, mowed down in a hail of bullets. And it goes on for, like, a minute. Yeah, and it's really excessive. And he's shot, like, 50 times. I think that was kind of clever and and funny. And then, like, But then it doesn't even really connect that. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, really. Right. The idea is that he and a bunch of other celebrities have been killed with blue steel the zoolander look on their face but that doesn't really have any impact on anything else in the movie that sort of just basically gets them into this storyline that's kind of like bondy where um you have penelope cruz as the new sort of female um lead and i thought she was fine you know like i thought she didn't have anything to do the script is terrible but i thought she had the right attitude she sort of she definitely looks the part she looks like she's there she's game she's up to have fun with the whole thing she just doesn't have anything to work with but uh, yeah, it just gets them into her little world, and then they go off and do something else. I couldn't even tell you really. It's it's so asinine. It basically involves Kristen Wiig's character, who's another weird fashion designer. She speaks funny. A couple of times, I, I chuckled at her accent. Her accent is so outrageous. But that's about it. And then it all ties back to Mugatu, of course, the Will Ferrell character. But. Even he isn't even that good in this movie. And and I don't know if I've ever said that about Will Ferrell in any movie. Usually, even in a terrible comedy, he's the guy you can look to and say, well, at least he was funny. Not really here. Yeah, I will give a shout out to Kiefer Sutherland, who I thought out of all of the kind of He was your favorite away, cameo. He was, out of all of them. Mostly just because... He treats it like it's not a comedy. He acts like very sincerely like he is in he a does. drama, a relationship drama involving Owen Wilson and uh, 10 other people. Right. And I appreciated that as much. I mean, like everyone else, as you said, mostly just shows up and then, you know, is themselves essentially waves at the camera and then walks away. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we need to really say about Zoolander, too. It's a pretty disappointing experience, but... For an alternative comedy that you can watch at home right now, we're going to recommend another recent comedy sequel, and that's Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. This also has Will Ferrell, actually. He's the lead in this one. Amazon Prime has the film, and actually, according to the website, they have three different versions of the movie. The theatrical cut, the unrated cut, and then the supersized version with 763 new jokes. That's what it says on the box. <laughs> and I don't know if people remember this. Is The movie came out a couple of years ago. And then like a month or two later, they put out for like one or two weeks 
an alternate version of the movie where they replaced every single joke in the movie with a different either a different take or a totally different joke. And I actually saw it and it wasn't as good as the theatrical cut, but there was something kind of amazing, like on an experimental level about taking a movie and taking out every single joke and replacing every single joke. And in some cases, adding new scenes and like taking out like weird digressions and putting in new ones. And just the fact that you could say of of Anchorman 2, there were 763 new jokes. I don't think there were 50 actual jokes of any kind, old or new, in Zoolander, except for the ones that were taken directly from the first movie. We didn't even really talk about that, the way they just – anything that was in the first movie, any joke – they is, did again. They do again. Yeah. Right. And uh should point out it's directed by Oscar nominee. That's Adam right. McKay. That's right. Anchorman 2. And also, I I mean, you know, if the first Anchorman was about someone who's like this kind of like icon of an era that was passing, right? Uh, he was kind of a Zoolander-esque exactly. beautiful idiot. Yes, exactly. And someone who like for who like for whom this idea, you know, that like his career was there was an end that yes. was coming. The same with Zoolander. Uh, the second movie figures out a way. They found something to do with him. To do with him, and like, and to take on uh, something that is actually totally timely, which right. is like the evolution of cable news and right. kind of the twenty-four hour news cycle, and giving people what they want. You know, telling people just what they want to hear rather than actually giving them the facts, because you know that's better for ratings. Right. And Zoolander 2, you know, has no kind of, can't figure out a real present day tie at all. Like there's, it's bewildered by it. And, you know, Anchorman 2 figures out a way to make it, to do something new rather than just rehash the jokes from the last time, but like bigger or with new, you know, with a new twist or longer. And maybe the media is a more fertile ground for a sequel. There's more things to make fun of as opposed to the world of male models. Maybe the male male modeling world just doesn't have that many jokes to approach with. I don't know. But either way, you know, Anchorman 2, just like you said, it it found an an angle, a way to use the characters again. Right. And, And it does rehash some of the jokes, but there's a lot of good stuff in there that wasn't you know, directly from the original movie. They found enough new stuff. I had a few people on Twitter being like, oh, when I, you know, when I would say, when I posted my review of Zoolander 2 or said I didn't like it, people were saying like, oh, so it's like Anchorman 2. I'm like, no, Anchorman 2 is so much better. If you thought Anchorman 2 was bad, you need to avoid Zoolander 2 at all costs. I mean, I I saw, I've seen Anchorman 2 a bunch of times and I, I laugh every time. Just the end, that big final fight scene I could watch a hundred times. And- All right. Well, that is Anchorman 2. It is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Right. And we have one more recent release, recent big release to talk about. And it is, I think, unexpectedly the best of the three. I that, would agree. We would, it's How to Be Single. This is the romantic comedy uh, that is based on a novel by Liz Cuchillo, who uh, I think wrote He's Not That Into You. The guide. This was a novel, though. This this book, this movie, really feels like it's based on a guidebook again. Um, starring Dakota Johnson, Rebel Wilson, Allison Brie, Leslie Mann, Jake Lacey, uh, Anders Holm, and is this kind of multiple storyline movie about women who are in different kind of phases of singledom right. in New York City? And it's not a perfect movie by any means. No. I, I I think that Dakota Johnson's storyline is mm, the least, it's the most central and the least interesting Agreed. of the group. Yes. But it, uh, it does have some really nice beats. And I will say like Leslie Mann's storyline is very, 
it's lovely. It's actually like the kind of thing that you could have, you kind of wanted the you whole movie to be You kind of want to be the about. whole movie. Yeah, I know. It's based on a book and you kind of wonder if it wasn't based on a book, if someone had just written the screenplay, if someone at some point would have said, let's ditch all the other characters. Let's just make it about the Leslie Mann character because that's the best character. Right. Because so Dakota Johnson's character is like fresh out of college, tells yes. her college boyfriend she wants to take a break. I have to find who I am. Right. I don't know who I am. And um, like I said, it's kind of the least compelling of the stories. Right. Rebel Wilson is just doing Rebel Wilson. It's fun. It's if fun. you enjoy Rebel Wilson, she's doing that she's same doing shtick. The thing. Allison Brie is in this kind of weird side storyline uh, in which uh, she keeps going right. to this bar that's owned by right. Dakota Johnson and Rebel Wilson go to this bar where, it just so happens, Allison Brie's character tends to hang out to use the free w- Wi-Fi right. and hang out with the hunky bartender, bartender Anders Holm, who... Uh, has a lot of kind of casual one night stands and has like engineered his whole life. So he's that, like, like the dude's dude, right? But a nice guy. He's it a nice guy, very clear, he, and he's, he's very upfront like, about, about his his non, like non commitmentness. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I feel like by by far the sweetest storyline is Leslie Mans, who's who plays uh, Dakota Johnson's older sister, who is a doctor, and I think like it she's flirts. an OBGYN, not just a doctor. Right. She and works kind of, with babies and delivering, and and that the storyline flirts with some of like the usual cliches about like I'm a working woman, right. like I didn't have time for love, but then she kind of decides to have a baby, uh, gets artificially inseminated, and and her. Uh, in a storyline that maybe lightly echoes the that J Lo movie <laughs> that I'm the name I'm forgetting, in which she also gets artificially inseminated and then falls in love with a hunky goat farmer, I <laughs> think uh, maker of goat cheese. I think um, it's uh, she she starts having this unlikely romance, unexpected romance right. that is really cute. Yes, with, with Jake, Jake Lacey. Lacey. Who played a very similar role in Obvious Child, yeah. where she, he's like the the guy. If you need someone to romance a pregnant lady, get me Jake Lacey. Uh, Leslie Mann is an actor who I find like in in Judd Apatow movies, which she's best known for. You know, she has been in many she's, of her husbands. She's movies. in almost all of them. Yes, uh, I just feel like she has to bear the burden of all of his complicated ideas about women you know and about uh, monogamy and about like oh you browbeating me but i'm so thankful kind of and like uh i i, I don't she gets a lot her. of thankless roles she does i do not love her in most judd apatow movies I, and i think he takes advantage of the fact that she is so likable and wonderful that like you can you, you almost forgive her characters for the way they behave sometimes because she is so great. Yes. But like to see her kind of freed from the Apatow production company and to, to have her even in the other woman, uh, which is not a good movie at all. She is this really like kind of like, like loose limbed kind of physical comedy character who's pretty fun and weird, like really weird. And then in this movie, she's kind of heartbreaking. She's, you know, she's someone great. who is, who is not, who is kind of like written off romance so that when this guy likes her a lot, she keeps shutting him down just because she's like, why? Like, yeah. why would you be interested in this? With right. Me? I'm so old. I'm, right. you know, like I, I work all the time, you know, like she doesn't see that herself as a romantic prospect. Right. Yes. And it's a really nice storyline. Sweet. Yeah. You know, and it, this movie is pretty messy. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not a, a masterpiece. Yeah. But 
it's I, pleasant. It's pleasant. And it, I mean, that's more than you can say, I think, for the other two movies, at least in my opinion, and I think in Matt's opinion as well. Yes. But if you want an alternative to this movie, I would love to give a shout out to Waitress, uh, which is available for digital purchase, not rental, unfortunately, but is the 2007 movie um, written and directed and co-starring Adrian Shelley, the late Adrian Shelley. It was actually what something that happened right before her murder um, so which makes it particularly a bittersweet movie, but a really nice one mm-hmm. um, uh, starring Carrie Russell as a waitress uh, who is kind of in this unhappy marriage and uh, she she finds out she's pregnant and kind of worries that this is just like another thing that will keep her in this marriage to someone she can't seem to get away from. But she's also, she channels all of her frustrations into pies in this pie shop that kind of get her a lot of attention and uh, and then also starts having, speaking of of like kind of romantic movies in which someone is pregnant, she as she falls in love with her OBGYN or has an affair with him, played by Nathan Fillion. And one of the things that this movie does really wonderfully is that it is it it has these elements of romance, but it is not ultimately a movie about romance. Mm. You know, it, for for all that, how to be single is called how to be single. Like half of its storylines are about people living happily ever after. Right. You know. I will say, though, that there's something to the J- Dakota Johnson character that actually does kind of remind me of Waitress in terms of her journey and where where she's headed. Sure. But I think that Waitress, Waitress also... Is better. Waitress is better. And also yeah. Waitress, I think, is is a bit more about like the very idea of, of finding yourself yeah. and kind of prying yourself out of of make like this habit of making yourself secondary to someone that mm. uh, who is making you unhappy in this case. And I I think it goes in some unexpected for like a very sweet movie. It goes in some unexpected and some kind of brave directions. And uh it's got a great uh, you know Carrie Russell uh, who's I think now finally getting appreciation as an actress because of The Americans. Very good in this. Uh, it's also got Cheryl Hines and Adrian Shelley as like her co-workers and friends, both of whom are great. Uh, it's and Andy Griffith is in this movie as well. I you know I think that it's a little indie, but it's it's one that that actually takes chances that I think that are deceptive when you when you when you hear what it's about, uh, and I, I really like it. So that is Waitress, and it is available for digital purchase. And I wanted to give one quick shout out. Yes. What was These the are movie all three you, big... you loved? It is Mountains May Depart, the new movie from Jia Zheng the Chinese director. It's not, I think, available on demand yet. Uh, this is only in limited release, but it is a kind of wonderful movie about set in China over three time periods. Uh, it stars uh, Jia's wife and his frequent collaborator, Zhao Tao. And it starts in 1999 when she and her two friends are in this love triangle, they're all in their 20s, and then skips to the present day, or ish, 2014, uh, when you know they're, uh, she's had a baby and, has, and, and things have changed. And then it skips to 2025 and Australia and her son, who has kind of become this nationless person. And it is one of the best and most bittersweet of the movies that I think about Chinese diaspora that I've seen and it's one that has a great use of a Pet Shop Boys song and Ooh. also of aspect ratio as like a way of of showing like broadening horizons and changing mm-hmm. times but also kind of suggesting that so it shifts throughout the movie yes. sort of like Grand Budapest Hotel yes cool uh, and that uh, 
but as it does this, kind of ironically suggests that these characters who are given more freedoms, uh-huh. you know, have had sacrifices made for them to have more freedoms, don't necessarily feel like they know what they're doing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a movie I really, really liked. And is there a meta wisecracking hitman who murders people and talks about his genitals? Sadly, no. I can't say I'm very interested, though. Yeah, I know. But if you are interested, I would really suggest uh, keeping an eye out for Mountains May Depart, which is getting a limited release right now. Well, that brings us to our Behind the Eight Ball section, where we give you three titles that are new to streaming, two that are recommended by you guys, the listeners, and one chosen blindly from our Netflix My Lists. And Matt, you are going first. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, give me three new releases. Okay, first up, new on Netflix, a movie we discussed on SVU number 99 in our Q Shot segment which was our notable 2015 movies you might have missed. This is Experimenter, the unusual biopic starring Peter Sarsgaard as experimental psychologist Stanley Milgram, whose Milgram experiment, which tested people's willingness to harm others under orders of a powerful authority figure, is one of the most important and controversial experiments in the history of psychology. The film, directed by Michael Armareda, shows you some of that experiment, features actually almost as many cameos as Zoolander 2 does. It has quite a few surprising cameos, much used much better in that movie. And it's just a more interestingly structured and shot film about this guy's life and how being willing to defy authority in different forms often has some serious consequences. So that's Experimenter, and that's on Netflix. Next up, new on Amazon Prime, is Maru, a documentary about a group of buddies who are attempting to climb one of the most treacherous mountains in the world, the so-called shark's fin of Maru. And this film was co-directed by one of the climbers in the group, and so one of the subjects is therefore also, like, making the movie. And I did think at times that that kind of hurts it. It comes a little close to being, like, a home movie at times or maybe an infomercial almost for, like, what these guys do for a living, which is being rock climbers and adventurers and photographers and stuff. But the footage of their actual climb and when you hear the stories and see the footage of what it takes to climb this absurd mountain, I would say that alone, if you have Amazon Prime, makes it worth watching. That's Maru on Amazon Prime. And finally, Allison, where were you in 1962? I was not Now, the answer better be Modesto, California, (laughs) the setting of American Graffiti, the story of a night in the lives of several local teenagers as they cruise the town in their classic cars looking for love and drag races and contemplating where their lives are about to go into an uncertain future. It's a really great film if you haven't seen it. Arguably one of the most important uh, in the history of American cinema. It cemented the career of its writer and director, this weird dude that made experimental films at USC named George Lucas. Uh, It enabled him to make Star Wars. It also really invented a genre, these sorts of day in the life of the American teenager movies, which have appeared every couple of years. A new one comes out since American Graffiti debuted in 1973. And it's, it's a really interesting and enjoyable movie. So that's American Graffiti. And that is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Okay, well, how about two listener recommendations? Our first one here comes from David in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He says, hi, Matt and Allison. I'd like to recommend some classic TV buried in the TV section of Hulu that's very easy to overlook. First off, if you know every Twilight Zone episode by heart and want to try something else, Hulu has Rod Serling's attempt into horror for the masses with 1969's Night Gallery. Like every anthology, it's an uneven show, but there are some great gems like the pilot 
with one of the segments directed by none other than Steven Spielberg in one of his very first jobs in the industry. The entire three seasons are available and are well worth a try. If you like how great TV has turned in the last couple decades with complex and well-written serialized shows, you might want to try one of its pioneers, 1980s Hill Street Blues. Deep storylines, great characters, and a classic 70s style uh, of right and wrong, i.e. the good guys aren't always good, the bad guys aren't always bad. This show paved the way for other great cop shows like NYPD Blue, Homicide, and The Wire. The first two episodes are amazing and a movie unto themselves. Keep up the great work. That's from David in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I've also got a recommendation here from Thomas. Thomas is on Twitter at PancakesNow. At PancakesNow. Thomas writes, I'd like to recommend The Missing. No, not the Tommy Lee Jones Western. That's good. But the TV series from 2014. The Missing was produced by the BBC and aired on Stars in America. James Nesbitt and Francis O'Connor star as Tony and Emily, a couple on holiday in France with their young son Oliver. After their car breaks down, the family is forced to spend a few nights in a small town. One evening, Tony and Oliver stop by an outdoor bar where a rowdy crowd is watching the FIFA semifinals. Tony loses sight of Oliver for a few seconds, and the boy is never seen again. Eight years later, police have stopped investigating, and Tony and Emily are divorced. Tony has doggedly continued the search for his son the whole time, and after happening upon a promising new clue that seems to blow the case open, he convinces the detective who ran the original investigation to help him chase down new leads and put the pieces together. While The Missing received very good reviews, I know few people who've heard of it, let alone watched it. I feel it was unfairly overshadowed by another 2014 crime show, True Detective, a show I liked but felt was a bit overrated and not as engaging as The Missing. It can be a tough watch at times, but it does not wallow in the misery of its characters and keeps the plot moving at a compelling pace. Thanks, guys. Love the show and love to bug the whole film spotting cast on Twitter. That's from Thomas at Pancakes Now. Thank you, Thomas. I haven't seen that show either. It sounds interesting. Yeah. And, okay, how about one from your My List? Well, speaking of shows that I haven't seen that sound interesting, you gave me number 14, and that is iZombie. And I, this is on my list because I think previously a listener recommended this as something we discussed on the show. And it did sound great, and I added it to my list, and I just haven't watched it yet. The show is about a medical student turned zombie who tries to retain her humanity by eating brains at the morgue and finds she has an uncanny new gift for solving crimes. Sounds great. I just haven't watched it because I don't have time to watch television anymore, Allison. Fair enough. I really enjoy that show, so I would. I got I to gotta check it out. I, it thumbs up. I zombie, all one word. All right, Allison, it's time for your countdown. Are you ready to go? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, first up is one of my, probably my favorite new show of last year, and also the show that I've had the hardest time convincing people to, to try because one, it is on Lifetime, and two, it is a show about reality television, which I think sends some people screaming or gives people an idea about what it'll be like that is not accurate. It is Unreal, which is currently the first season of which is currently available on Hulu with a subscription. And is this this show is like as bitterly dark as I think a a somewhat comedic show can get. Uh, stars Sh Shiri Appleby as a reality TV producer on a bachelor-like show uh, who works for a a sometimes soulless seeming boss played by Constance Zimmer and uh, guides the show through a rocky season um, in which she has a doomed like a kind of ill-fated flirtation with the bachelor type character and has a uh, kind of and manipulates all of the characters throughout to get good television and I think something the show does that 
I've never really seen to the extent that it is here. Uh, it, it has a main character who understands that she is often doing monstrous things, but is also addicted to how good she is at her job and how good she is at manipulating people. And always feels like she's better than this or that she should be leaving, but also is get, is kind of addicted to it, Is gets a high off of how well she can send people careening off into making good TV that inevitably makes them look bad. It is a very sharp, sharply written show. It is based on a uh, short film called Sequin Rays by Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, who was, in fact, a, a producer on The Bachelor for multiple seasons. And I think she has said, got out of it eventually, got out of her contract by threatening suicide. <laughs> Um, it is a great show. The second season is starting uh, later this year. I would really suggest you take a look at it. Re I mean, even if this premise sounds not appealing to you, it I, that the first episode is very good and uh, will give you a good sense of what the season is like. So that is Unreal. It is on Hulu right now. New to Netflix is Love, not to be confused with the Netflix original series that is premiering uh, in, in a week or two, but this is the Gaspar Noe semi-pornographic uh, movie shown in 3D in theaters. Unfortunately, Netflix, I do not think, can accommodate <laughs> 3D at the moment. So this will lose an element, including the fact that I mean, the shot that I think the whole movie is created for, which is the money shot at the camera uh, in 3D. Uh, but it stars Carl Guzman as a character named Murphy, who reflects on his passionate but rocky relationship with a woman named Electra, played by Aomi Muyak, um, after he has be basically become, ended up in an unhappy relationship with another woman who he cheated on his first girlfriend with and who got pregnant. Uh, this movie, I think, like a lot of Gaspar Noé movies, is beautifully made. Uh, it's just he's got such a, a great visual sensibility, mm -hmm. it's, and and terribly written. Like I think it's it's it often sounds like it was run through Google Translate, and the main character is just terrible in a way in which it's never very clear if uh, the movie knows it or not. But it seems to have a great deal of sympathy for him anyway. That said, I, you never get bored in a Gaspar Noé movie, uh, and this movie will, has sex scenes like you really don't see in any kind of even art house release. So that is love. It is available on Netflix. And new to Amazon Prime is Amy, the current Oscar nominee, British documentary, directed by Asif Kapadia, who directed Senna. Like Senna, this is a movie comprised entirely of archival footage, news footage, home videos from the life of Amy Winehouse, uh, depicting her kind of rise to stardom, her pr struggles with addiction, her terrible romantic relationship with someone, and mm -hmm. uh, and her premature death and you know if it's i i would say i'm hoping for the look of silence to win the oscar the, the oscar this year i don't know if it will this seems more likely i won't be sad if this wins either because i think it's a very strong movie and a very sad movie yeah the uh, the music doc always wins these lately at the oscars right and i mean frankly this is better than most of the ones that have won in the last sure. couple of years and, you know i mean for like 
I don't know. I, the, the, the kind of difficult, artistically rigorous movie about Indonesian genocide seems like a tougher sell in some ways. It is. I mean, that's but, an amazing documentary. Right. I, I would vote for it as well. I'm just saying I'll be I, less upset oh, about no. Amy winning than, than I have been about movies. some of those other sure. movies that have won. Sure. Well, Amy is, is a really good documentary, too. It is. That is Amy. It is on Amazon Prime. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. Oh, okay. First up, we have one from Cyrus, who writes, Hey, guys, this pick is partially inspired by the FX show The People vs. OJ Simpson, which recently aired its Bronco Chase episode. It is the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary June 17th, 1994 on Netflix. The documentary is less than an hour long and documents the chase as well as several other landmark events in sports that occurred on the same day, all experienced through television by most Americans. There has been a trend in documentaries recently to avoid talking heads slash interviews in favor of only primary source footage. Among those uh, cybersites are Amy and Senna and Let the Fire Burn. And this fits neatly into that category. The effect is mesmerizing, and the meta experience of seeing the media lens shape these people's lives is compelling as well. Even if you're not watching the show or have an interest in sports, this formally inventive doc is worth your time. That's a great recommendation. I have not seen that. You haven't seen that doc? I, I'm oh, adding man, it to my list. You wow. have to. It's great. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. I love that movie. All right, and we have a second recommendation from Jason from O'Fallon, Missouri, who writes... The film Black Mountainside starts off as a rather blatant homage to John Carpenter's The Thing. Fans of Carpenter's film will enjoy picking out the reference moments from the classic film. After the first 15 minutes or so, the film abandons its fun, if limiting fanboy-fueled reworking of The Thing, and dares to tell its own story. Black Mountainside's tale of men succumbing to madness in an isolated snowbound location may not reach the exalted heights of Carpenter's classic, but it's certainly better than the prequel-slash-remake Abomination from a few years back. It is available for rent on iTunes, Amazon, and Vudu. Thank you for that, Jason. I have not heard of that movie, and it sounds promising. Okay. How about one film chosen blindly by number from your You gave me number 13. Uh, that is Meet the Patels. It's a documentary directed by Gita and Ravi Patel, who are siblings, and it is centered on Ravi, who is an actor. Um, he's currently on the sitcom Grandfathered, but uh, I know him best as the character named Ravi, who is the friend and rival actor on the Master of None episode Indians on TV. Right. And this doc is about how Ravi, after ending a relationship with uh, a white woman that he's been keeping secret from his parents agrees to basically turn himself over to the big business of Indian-American matchmaking of the kind of marriage industry uh, spanning both in the Indian-American community and the Indian community, despite his hesitations. Uh, and it becomes a documentary about both him and about kind of uh, the current generation of Indian-Americans and their relationship to some kind of older-fashioned marriage ideas. It's by all accounts a pretty fluffy personal doc, but a charming one. I've heard some good things about it. It actually did fairly well for a small documentary. Uh, so I'm interested in checking it out. That is Meet the Patels. All right. Let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. I think we've got an interesting trio here. I do not know what's going to win. Let's start with the first option. I have it right here. It is, I think you've already mentioned it sort of uh, offhandedly, and we're not going to confuse anybody by doing this. This is Love, not the movie Love with the uh, sexi sexiness. This is the new show, Love, which is a Netflix original, which will be available on the streaming service starting on February 19th. 
It stars Jillian Jacobs and Paul Rust, and the description from Netflix says, Rebellious Mickey and good-natured Gus navigate the thrills and agonies of modern relationships in this bold new comedy co-created by Judd Apatow. So this is a television series co-created by Apatow, who, of course, before he was... Judd Apatow, movie mogul. He was uh, making really great TV shows like Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. So I think that's really, to us, is really the interesting thing about it. I mean, um, we've we've covered a, quite a few Netflix shows on this uh, podcast, but I think this one is particularly intriguing sounding. Yes. So, so that is option number one, Love, which will be available on Netflix on February 19th. Option number two is a movie named Life, or like Love, Love Life, Life. Uh, is available for rental and on demands. And it is the 2005 film directed by Anton Corbin and based on the friendship that formed between Life photographer Dennis Stock, who is played in the movie by Robert Pattinson, and the actor James Dean, who is played in the movie by Dane DeHaan. And it's about uh, how he was, Dennis Stock was sent on an assignment to kind of shoot James Dean before East of Eden. And they kind of did a road trip and they became besties. And this movie got almost no attention when it it got this very small release in theaters last year. You know, and Corbin, who is a music video director and a photographer as well as a filmmaker, made the great film Control about Joy Division. The like, okay film The American. And the underrated spy thriller from 2014, A Most Wanted Man, came out last year uh, with with the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. I, I think he's a good director, and I'm not entirely sure why this movie, which has gotten <laughs> like, mixed to positive reviews, yeah. just got totally ignored, especially when it has to like an up-and-comer like Dane DeHaan and a you know internet favorite like Robert Pattinson in like the two lead roles yeah so it's a movie I'm very interested in seeing and I, I think we can talk about either either about one of life these, we can talk about, about life, life in general maybe we can talk about filmmakers who also made music videos. are alive oh music videos yeah that too or Let's just talk about how dreamy we think Robert Pattinson is. I could, I could do that. For an hour or two. I'm, I'm, up, I'm up for that. All right. Well, that is life, and it is available for rent. What okay. is our last pick? Our third pick is also available for rent. We've mentioned it also on the show previously. It is the film Southbound, which, again, is available on VOD already, but uh, you can also rent it. Uh, it is the, the anthology horror film, Five Interlocking Tales of Terror. Uh, following the fates of weary travelers, and we discussed it earlier in the show on opening break. It's a movie we're both very curious to see, haven't had a chance to see. And um, I guess we could uh, we could talk about movies about the open road. We could just drive around and record the podcast while driving. That might be I fun. Like that that like, might be terrifying. It's like Key and Peele, basically. That would be very terrifying. Yeah. So that's option number three, Southbound, which is available on VOD and also for rent. Okay, well, which of these movies slash TV shows should we review on our next episode? You can send your pick to SVU at SVU, but really you should just enter on the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. It's a lot easier. Your vote must be received by Monday, February 22nd at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at SVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV show and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will be on Tuesday, March 1st. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. 
We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And hey, why not go to iTunes and leave us a review? Have we mentioned that recently, Allison? I don't know, but... It doesn't matter if we we did or not. We need your love. We do. We desperately need it. Desperately. It's the only thing keeping me going right now because I'm certainly not getting enough sleep. No. I'm subsisting on a diet of love from listeners. The only thing that's keeping me awake. Love from listeners and mean Deadpool emails. Yes. That's the only thing I have to fuel my body. Uh, uh, So please go to iTunes. Give us a review. Leave us a five-star rating. We really appreciate it. And it helps us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, SVU, I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.